Hello, everyone, and welcome to Michigan State University's Liberal Arts Endeavor, a podcast dedicated to the transformative power of our faculty research and pedagogy here at MSU. In each episode of the Liberal Arts Endeavor, we offer an inside perspective on the research, teaching, and scholarship that are enriching the ways we think and act in a complex, interconnected world. I'm your host, Chris Long, Dean of the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. And in the studio today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming Professor Yomira Figueroa, Assistant Professor in English and Global Diaspora Studies. Welcome, Yomira. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. So let's talk a little bit about uh, about your research. I know you recently uh, finished a draft of your book, and it's out at the at, at the press. So so talk a little bit about the book. I'm so excited, yes. Um, it's out of the press. I'm waiting for um, my reviews any day now, actually. Oh, wow. Um, and so the book is tentatively titled uh, Decolonizing Diaspora's Radical Mappings of Afro-Atlantic Literature. And what I do in that book is I trace is I trace um, the literary and culture productions from the Afro-Latinx Caribbean, so Afro-Puerto Rican, Cuban, and Dominican works written in diaspora in relationship to Spanish-speaking Africa, so Sub-Saharan Spanish-speaking Africa's Equatorial Guinea, and I trace their literature produced in exile and diaspora in Spain. And what I'm trying to um, have in this book and what I'm trying to do with this kind of project is to engage in a mapping of often peripheralized uh, black Atlantic authors. So trying to um, offer something to the fields of black studies, Latinx studies, and Hispanophone studies, as well as literary studies, um, by thinking about what it means to map the occupations of these uh, authors and these writers coming from these islands and from the diasporic spaces. Um, And so uh, I pay lots of attention to race and racialization, um, ethnic difference. um, And I do and I do the readings, uh, the close readings of these books through um, the lens of women of color feminist thought. Mm. So looking at women of color feminist thought from the U.S., from the Caribbean, from Africa, um, and thinking about what that perspective offers us um, as a methodology um, in the humanities. Yeah, so so I, just in listening to you describe the project, you have a lot of geographical metaphors that you're using. You, you have uh, mapping, and and you, I know issues of boundaries and islands as a, a, a both as a metaphor and also a, a theme of the of the book is 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 critical. Could you talk a little bit about that as a metaphor through which you think about these yeah, issues? For sure. So, for example, um, for the Spanish speaking Caribbean um, and for Latinx studies writ large, uh, New York City, for example, is seen an, as an extension of the Caribbean mm. because we have so many people from uh, Puerto Rico, from Dominican Republic, especially now, um, living in New York City. Just just as Miami is seen as an extension of the Caribbean. So really thinking broadly in these um, kinds of ways that push the kind of more uh, formal, uh, geographical, or cartographic, sorry, Mm -hmm. excuse me, um, cartographic um, uh, ways that we would see the world. The same thing with Equatorial Guinea. Because it's in sub-Saharan Africa, um, and because it's the only Spanish-speaking nation state um, in that part of the continent, Um, It is often left out of so many discourses. But Mm. when we actually take up um, where much of the the literary productions, like the the kinds of spaces that they meditate on, they meditate on um, experiences of the islands. And when we kind of take that into account, um, we can actually trace a different kind of geography, a different kind of historical connection to the Caribbean that traces back to the 19th century. Mm. Um, And not to mention um, the histories under um, the the colonial uh, heel of Spain. and part of this project is also part of the uh, larger archipelagic turn that is happening in cultural studies and Latinx studies, um, really building on the work that's been done in Oceania and, and Pacific Island studies. Um, 
where you have these incredible scholars really thinking about what it means to think from these kinds of spaces that are seen as that are seen as insular territories mm. um, that are that are often talked about from the perspective of mainland quote mainland territories um, or what Craig Santos Perez calls um, imperial terrapelagos, right? Um, and so thinking about um, islands in relationship to one another, not only in relationship to um, these kind of larger land masses or colonial powers becomes really important. And so for me, um, the relationship between the islands in the Caribbean and the islands off the coast of Africa hail a much longer history of um, Atlantic crossings, mm. but also offer us really different ways to think about um, uh, contemporary uh, issues and struggles. And what I what I suggest in the text is that they offer us different ways of thinking about decolonization mm-hmm. in both um, practice and in the ma- imaginary. And so I trace some of the preoccupations that emerge in the text. So, so what? So what are some of the lessons that you're bringing to bear on this whole issue <laughs> of decolonization? And I mean, I, I love the the way that you're thinking uh, about sort of both sides of the Atlantic at once, and 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 how this all um, offers us a new perspective on some of the issues that that are most pressing to us right now. Yeah, oftentimes when we think about decolonization, we think about the process that happened in the 1960s where um, many uh, nations, like third world uh, nations, were um, decolonized from uh, these imperial, uh, their imperial colonial powers. Um, and so there was this kind of like worldwide decolonization movement. But one of the things um, that we understand is that just because a space is administratively decolonized um, doesn't mean that the remnants of the colonial um, power are not there. Mm. Um, and so what we see um, in different forms of thinking about um, decolonization within that within that kind of perspective is that there remains um, what some scholars call like the coloniality of power, the coloniality of gender, the coloniality of knowledge and of being. Um, we also have to think about the kind of ongoing forms of settler colonialism here in the U.S. Mm. Um, and the ways that um, decolonial thought coming and emerging from indigenous communities offers and complicates notions of decolonization. And so for me, these texts offer us different ways to think about these things. And so, for example, um, one of the one of the one of the the way that I open the book, for example, is thinking about intimacy and thinking about the ways that the the authors, three different authors, are critiquing power and tracking the way that it operates. Um, although they're on in islands or um, kind of uh, diasporic peoples, the way that power follows them and the ways that individually. Um, especially black women, black femmes um, in the text are able to engage in forms of like corporeal freedom, yeah. um, even as the intimacy of power is uh, becomes part of everyday parts of their lives. It becomes part of like what they can eat, um, sociality, right, um, um, the erotic. Um, and so for me, uh, the, the text offered me a way to think about what does power do to the body mm-hmm. and how do people respond to that um, in ways that we often can't see or can't trace. Um, there's often, I mean, for me, I, I, the book kind of goes in a sequence. And so from there, I go to thinking about witnessing. I go to thinking about um, destierro, this concept of being torn away from the homeland, what it means to resist those things, right? What is the, the practice of memory as a decolonial tool? Um, I engage in a conversation about reparations, what mm-hmm. these uh, texts offer us um, as um, as what they offer us in terms of thinking about reparations outside of positivism, outside of a like a, a number that we can like you know kind of um, offer to someone as an apology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I am I end the book with thinking about futurities, and so each one of the chapters 
really is looking at the text um, in a very loving way, I think, um, to think about what it is that they're offering us to, to remap how we're thinking about liberation in different ways. One of the things that's so powerful about the approach that you're taking is this combination of close literary readings and bringing that into um, dialogue with and bringing it to bear really on some of the pressing social and political issues of our time. Um, so who, tell us a little bit about the text that you're actually reading. Who, who are the authors and, and how are they being brought together? Yeah, so um, I come out of ethnic studies um, uh, programs, so... Um, <clears throat> I feel that uh, in thinking back about the way I put the project together, it's like very intense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but each of the chapters takes um, up between three and four texts and close reads those those texts. Um, and reading them through, um, you know, uh, the lens of women of color, feminists and feminist philosophers, it's, it's really important. So I think that there's a, a way in which I see um, a reflection of lived experiences and, and women of color um, as being able to bear something in, in the reading of the text. And so... For example, I read, um, in chapter one, I read uh, the work of Juan Tomás Ávila Laurel. Um, it's a book called um, Ar del Monte de Noche, or um, it's translated to English. It's um, By Night the Mountain Burns. I read um, Nelly Rosario's uh, Song of the Water Saints. Um, she's a Dominican author. Um, and then I also read Trifonia um, Melibea Bono's um, La Bastarda, which is also translated to English um, as La Bastarda. Um, I read uh, Juno Diaz's The Brief on the Life of Oscar Wilde, as well as Donat and um, Las Tinieblas de Tu Memoria Negra, or Shadows of Your Black Memory, as well as Araceli Germay's uh, The Black Maria, and that's in the second chapter. Um, in the third chapter, I read Loa de Maritza Perez's Geographies of Home, um, as well as uh, Juan Tomás Ávila Laurel's um, El Dictador de Corisco, The Dictator of Corisco. Um, in the fourth chapter, um, I am tracking reparations, so I read uh, Joaquin Bombio Bacheng's um, novel called Matinga, Sangre en la Selva, so Matinga, Blood in the Jungle. Mm. Um, and I also read Ernesto Quiñones's um, Bodega Dreams. Um, and then I read some music, <laughs> um, some kind of like a, a music by uh, Hooray for the Riffraff. And then in the final um, chapter, um, I, I am close reading four things. So I'm reading um, the first album from um, these French Afro-Cuban twin sisters called Ibeyi um, and listening to their music and then um, analyzing their um, videos and tracing their work to like longer histories of elegies in Afro-Cuban Santeria. Um, I read um, Danny Jose Older's Shadow Shaper. It's a young adult novel. I was really excited to be able to incorporate that into the book. Mm. And then I read uh, Juno Diaz's short story, Monstro, um, as well as Juan Tomás Abel Laurel's um, like kind of futuristic novel called Bangarilene. Yeah. Um, and so that's most of the corpus of the text. Um, I'm sure I've missed something in there, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, how did, how did the, su such a wide spectrum and diversity of text come? I mean, what was driving those decisions about um, how to bring them together in a dialogue with one another? Um, I, as a graduate student, I was taking a, f a philosophy course, and we had been reading um, Emmanuel Eze's On Reason. Mm. And in one of those chapters, he was talking about the kind of um, languages in post-colonial memory. And he was hailing kind of Ngugiwationgo's argument in decolonizing the mind about um, African writers and indigenous literatures. And then uh, for me, I got really stuck on this kind of last moment in that, uh, uh, in that essay where he offers the same kind of... Um, uh, suggestion to writers in Latin America and the Caribbean and the U.S. and saying, like, you all need to um, also write in your indigenous languages. And I thought, uh, for me, as someone who's a uh, Puerto Rican, who's a black Puerto Rican, uh, knowing that um, uh, the colonial project was so, so early in Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. um, that we don't have access to our indigenous language. Our indigenous language is still part of 
um, the Spanish that we speak in the Caribbean. Um, so our Spanish is inflected with uh, Taino words and African words, um, but that it's not like this kind of pure language that we could write in. And so I was really interested in what are the ways that writers who have access and who don't have access to indigenous languages, what are the ways that they think about liberation outside of this possibility? Um, and so because I was an ethnic studies uh, PhD program, they were like, that's really nice that you want to do a literary project, <laughs> um, but you will have to show that you can do historiography, that you can engage um, in the kind of philosophical conversations, that when you're close reading, you are showing relation, mm -hmm. right? You're showing connection, um, and that you're able to have this kind of um, kind of complex conversation that uh, you're looking at the kind of central question um, from all different perspectives in the same project. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, that was really useful. Um, I like studied linguistics for a little while to try mm -hmm. to study the linguistics of Equatorial Guinea and the Caribbean and what, what was similar about them and what was very different. Um, I'm not a linguist, so I had to like quit that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is really hard. And, um, and so I got this really kind of rich project that really forced me to think about um, relationality, but also difference, about mm -hmm. the ways that like even as, you know, this is not a comparative project where I can say like this person thinks about dictatorship and that person thinks about dictatorship. It's actually quite different, right? Mm -hmm. um, even as they share some histories, like some like material histories, um, but also some like kind of forms of thinking about the imagination. And so... Um, yeah, I, on a side note, I don't know if you add this, but it's really different now because because in the English department, like a lot of our students are reading one text per chapter, like they close read right, one, right. right? And so then I'm like this monster, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I've had to learn like, oh no, my that, like this is English, right? Like my right. students should be able to do this, and that's okay. So I'm learning also like yeah. what it means to be coming from a different field into right. a new discipline and saying, and even though I was trained in English as an undergrad, you know, but not the same, right? right. Um, and the being able to kind of like acclimate to, to that and be like, oh yeah, this is legitimate, right? Like right. let's, and then, but also trying to push my students to co complicate what they're doing as well while they're still doing one text. Yeah. I think some of that is also connected with the, there's an interesting way in which the scholarship that you're pursuing is also pushing uh, the academy to think differently about disciplinarity itself. And so as you as you talk about the advice you received in graduate school about kind of what what you would need to do to position yourself well for a, for a job, as you enter into a English department at Michigan State and think about well what what does that mean the the core ideas of your project around um, thinking about power and institutionality and decolonial you know, practices is tied up with that. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges that you're facing and also the ways in which, and you and I have talked a little bit about this, the ways in which you're hoping to push the institution to think differently about the kind of scholarship it supports. Yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the things that I think is of a very real um, experience is that for those of us who are doing work um, that has to do with um, race and gender, that has to do with colonialism, that has to do with people quote, on the underside of the modern colonial project, um, we are often faced with um, having to um, master Eurocentric knowledge mm -hmm. to be able to justify the work that we do, right? right. Um, and so it is this kind of sense where you have to be able to defend yourself um, as you're presenting your work. So I knew right away when I, I, when I talk about decolonial love, I've been in, been in places where they're like, well, um, how does that compare to what Lacan thinks about love? Mm -hmm. 
how does that compare to where so and so like Nussbaum thinks about love and I've had to uh, prepare for that and be like oh actually I've read that so uh, this is yeah. what I think about what mm-hmm. about, about what that is um, I really hope that we're going moving towards a place a place where that's not um, going to be the reality for our scholars you know coming up in the future and I think we're we're really um, setting the ground for that um, for the idea that like this knowledge um, that is coming from people who are often ignored who are coming from people who um, are marginalized um, who are coming from oppressed um, populations um, are seen as valid mm-hmm. right are seen as valid um, and I think for me um, having um, this experience uh, a, a graduate experience where um, it was it was kind of like twofold it was like this is a really important knowledge but you also need to protect yourself mm-hmm. right when you go out there because it's not going to be like this love fest that we have here right mm-hmm. um that was really important to me so that when I, I came to uh the job here um this is my my first job mm-hmm. you know um, out of grad school um I was really like it was really important for me to be able to bring that to my students into the classroom mm-hmm. and to think about um, the different ways that my students learn, the, stu- the different kinds of um, text that I wanted to bring to them mm-hmm. um, and how to um, kind of enrich the kinds of conversations that were happening in the classroom. Um, so centering a class on um, diaspora studies, centering a class, even a comparative ethnic studies class, right, like that I taught for the English department, where my students are able to engage across a set of texts. And sometimes they're not like, um, they're like, I didn't sign up for this class, you know? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> well, yes, you did, you know? <laughs> right. um, and so that's been really important to me, um, especially um, at the grad- undergraduate level, uh, teaching my undergrad students, and then at the graduate level and training my students um, to think about who they're citing, right? right. Um, who gets to be part of their conversation um, and why, right? Mm-hmm. Like why go to, you know, th- there's of- of- often the idea that you have to be able to cite the right people so that um, you can hail the right audience, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, you have to say Foucault. You have to say when you talk about power, right? Like, and so it's this really interesting thing where, like, I'm really trying to challenge my students to think differently about what it means to um, engage with other knowledge in the space, um, not only as, like, a rhetorical practice, but also as, like, a writing practice um, and, and one that drives them to also continue that and share that with other people. Yeah, absolutely. So um, one of the things I have uh, really appreciated about our conversations over the over the past few years ha- have been the ways in which you've helped me learn how to create spaces for the kind of work that you're doing. And because the challenge that we have is the organization of the institution is disciplinary, and yet we value, or at least we say we value, interdisciplinary work, intersectional work, and yet we need to make sure that we put the structures in place to support that that kind of work as people move through the promotion and tenure process, but also as they create spaces within the curriculum to teach the kind of courses that we most want to be taught so that we have students from a wider diversity of backgrounds coming and seeing themselves in the curriculum that we that we teach. So one of the ways that you've helped do that is through the Women of Color Initiative. And um, But maybe you could talk a little bit about the Women of Color Initiative, but also maybe more broadly about these um, spaces that we are trying to open up within the institution to support the kind of work that you're doing. Yeah. Um, well, the Woman of Color Initiative um, it was 
something that I saw was necessary here when I got here. So there was a Woman of Color Initiative in my undergrad institution, and it was um, like an annual symposium. And then when I went to grad school, um, there was a Woman of Color Initiative that ran um, the Empower Women of Color Conference, and it's the largest Woman of Color Conference in the country. And I ran that. I was part, part of that organizing structure, and then I ran that uh, conference for a year. And so when I came to MSU, I saw, because we're such a large campus, mm. um, it, and quite decentralized in many ways, um, I saw that there was really a need for a kind of cross conversations. Like I was hosting dinners um, at my house for graduate women of color. Um, and it was mostly on their request. They were like, can you make coconut chicken? <laughs> can we come to your house? You know? And so I was like, okay, this is really, this is really sweet, but we also need some other kind of space on campus um, for these women. And so uh, my colleague and I, um, uh, she had like alerted me that Alexis Pauling Gums was coming in into Michigan, and so she was able to facilitate um, bringing uh, Alexis Pauling Gums into town, and then that's kind of how it kicked off because we had been in conversation for a long time like how can we do this, how can we do this, uh, but we weren't really sure. And then I think you know um, when that event happened, we just kind of like threw ourselves into it. And we're like, okay, we have to put this mm-hmm. together, um, and so that first time around it was a little bit uh, difficult, but actually then we got support uh, from you at the college um, and then from my Department of English, and that has really transformed like the what we can do like the the capability of the program and so what we have um, tried to do is to create spaces on campus um, to bring in um, a speaker every semester and the last two uh, semesters we brought an artist in residence instead of like a speaker um, to be able to hold a series of different events um, that were catered towards different communities of color and different different communities of women of color and their allies on campus and so we'd have events that are only for undergraduates events that are only for graduate women um, dinners for women of color faculty reception for everyone, um, public lectures. Um, and so it has been really incredible um, to bring in these women. We were able to bring um, Leanne um, Beresamosaka Simpson. We were able to bring in Ana Castillo. Um, we brought in Shawnee Peters. We did a book launch for our colleague Ray Paris, who's now gone, but um, mm-hmm. uh, for her book. And then we, uh, the, most recently, we brought in. Um, uh, Nani Bachacon, uh, who's an incredible muralist. Mm-hmm. And so this was the first time that uh, we were able to have these, I mean, beautiful events on campus with Nani Ba for the time of her residency. Um, but then we were also able to branch out into the community. So in this really incredible way, um, through the Women of Color Initiative, um, the College of Arts and Letters has this like mural that yeah. is now oh, in downtown cool. Lansing and everyone is just going like gaga over it, you know? Um, and But it, it's like a beautiful community-informed mural. And and for, for me, it, it is um, something that is really special because I really felt um, as I was coming to this job, like, the, you know, the reason I wanted to be a professor was because I wanted to teach and I wanted to help sustain first-generation students to finish. Like, mm-hmm. to, you know, they can finish. They belong in the space. Um, and I really think about my scholarship as something that sustains that um, and that my service also sustains that same kind of project. Um, and so this was really, like, a way to tie those things together, but also a way to tie this huge institution to this kind of like small corner, right. uh, you know, um, that is really tended to by the Cesar E. Chavez Commission. Um, and it was just a really wonderful thing. And that was really um, spearheaded by Estrella Torres, who was at uh, the Residen- Residential College for the Arts and Humanities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like her, um, really her footwork that made that happen. And that was like really, um, really exciting. And and that's just the start of, of possibility. Absolutely. Yeah. And so one of the things that, that you and I have talked um, about quite 
regularly is the need to articulate that work, that work of community building, that work of um, ensuring that there are spaces for support for women of color, for faculty of color in the university as critical to your own scholarship, your own work, and it's critical to um, what you're contributing to the life of the institution, but also toward your own career advancement through the promotion and tenure process. And, and so maybe you could talk a little bit about the, how you've told that and integrated that um, component of your work into a more holistic vision of research, service, and, and teaching. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, when we get hired here at MSU, we yeah. get that little green booklet right. set, right? <laughs> that is like, you need to show how your stuff is connected. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, bet this is going to be easy. Like, I can, <laughs> this is, you know, this is really um, the kind of like impetus for the work for, of me, but also of so many women of color who come here and are like doing this incredible research, who are like really um, dedicated to the students and then are doing service that sustains their, yeah. their teaching and their research um, and their students' lives, right, in many ways. Um, and so for me, it was really important to be able to tell that story. So for example, in our narratives that we write for our departments, um, in the ways that we are thinking about um, the kinds of classes that we want to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it was really important to say like, actually my research is this, it's in, it forms my teaching this way, and these things inform my, my service in this other way. Um, so, for example, one of the things that is really, um, really impacted me, for example, last year was, um, and so many of us, was Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And so in the, in the kind of, like, scramble to attend to our families um, on the island, we, uh, it was like a des- desperate attempt, right, um, to figure out what we could do from afar, um, knowing that if we went, we would just add to a lot of the problems that were happening um, in terms of like uh, food scarcity, water scarcity, no electricity, et cetera. Um, and so a group of us put on um, a uh, open mic night in Lansing where we fundraise money to give to um, an organization that was doing suicide prevention programs in some some of the most critically affected areas. From there, we applied to a grant to the Center for Latin American um, and Caribbean Studies here at MSU, um, and we launched this project with the support of them and the support of all of our units Mm. um, to go down to Puerto Rico, and we were able to to speak with and work alongside so many grassroots organizations and community organizations that were doing recovery projects, and then we also interviewed like 32 women Mm. um, about their experiences during the hurricane. we are now like translating, uh, transcribing and translating those interviews. But more importantly, we are also uh, establishing a strategic partnership with Festival de la Palabra, which is run by um, Afro-Puerto Rican writer Mayra Santos Febres. And um, what we're launching now, like this, so it's kind of like a personally inflected project that is also um, very much part of um, the way that we think about our, our duty as, as, as professors and as scholars. Um, and because of that kind of groundwork, um, we are now um, organizing kind of the first of hopefully many um, classes that will do a study away in Puerto Rico so that the students can um, kind of learn about the kind of environmental, political, social um, impacts um, of uh, hurricanes and mm-hmm. these kinds of disasters um, and uh, for them to kind of be on the ground and learn from other organizers and thinking about social justice in different ways. Um, and so that's kind of one of the ways that... Um, that I think we're like, you know, kind of trying to think about rapid responses, mm-hmm. um, but in a way that is ethical um, and and really trying to think through the dimensions of that um, and in a way that is sustainable. So not just like a one time, like here we are with some water. Thank right, you. Right. You know, 
the example that you gave of, of what you're doing in Puerto Rico in the wake of the hurricane, and, and I know you're bringing a group of citizen scholars uh, in the uh, spring break coming up in the, in the spring uh, to Puerto Rico to, to learn more about the, the hurricane and the aftermath of that. I mean, it's a perfect example of the way in which you're living out the public mission of uh, the university in your research, your teaching, and your service. So the fact that you're bringing um, not only you know students to uh, have these experiences, but also the the depth of your own sophisticated understanding of decolonial politics and the way power operates to bear on a very concrete traumatic experience that is you know a great example of the transdisciplinary nature of the work that you're doing, obviously thinking about the issues of global warming and how um, the, the natural forces of storms and the social and political impact of those storms in the history of uh, a place like Puerto Rico and, uh, and the United States and their relationship. So it, it becomes a, a rich example of the kind of engaged work that you're doing. Yeah, um, it's really exciting because I think as you're on the ground, you realize um, uh, some really incredible kinds of connections um, to thinking about social sh different social justice, I social justice issues yeah. within a particular context, but also how that branches out. And I'm going to give an example, but I'm not sure this can actually go on the podcast. So mm -hmm. this is going to be y'all, right. <laughs> you choose. <laughs> um, but one of the things that happened, for example, one of the, one of the um, really important things that we did while we were there is that we were uh, partnered with this group called Siete Quillas. It's like basically like seven lines on leatherback turtles. So leatherback turtles are these like enormous... Uh -huh. turtles seven eight nine feet um and they come to the different beaches on puerto, in puerto rico to lay their eggs starting in march yeah. and so um they are endangered um and out of every like thousand eggs only one survives um and so what happens is that especially on the urban beaches after the hurricane the hotels that were afraid of um uh quote-unquote crime or whatever the case may be would shine their lights directly on the beach mm. rather than have a motion sensor light and so what happens is that when the turtles come in to lay their eggs, they have to follow the moon to go back. Oh. But the lights would kind of uh, confuse them. And instead of walking back towards the water, they would walk to the street. And mm. because they're so massive, there's no way to get them back into the water. Oh. Um, and so there are these groups that patrol the beach at nighttime. They dress all in black and underneath they wear like a white shirt. Mm -hmm. um, and so when um, the turtles come in, they'll like stay to the side, they'll wait for it to um, lay its eggs. And then they will like slowly kind of get the turtle with their white shirts mm -hmm. back into the water, right, uh -huh. to have them follow them. So we were patrolling um, the group of faculty that went. We were patrolling the beach um, uh, one of the nights, and um, it, no turtles came that night, but we were they were showing us where the, some of the nests were and how, you know, they were building um, dunes on these kind of urban beaches where the where the um, hotels had, like, kind of flattened out the mm -hmm. landscape and how that's not very helpful to the turtles. And so we got to this one dark patch, and she was like, you know, this is where a lot of the sex work happens on the beach. And so a lot of um, people say, you know, I shouldn't be patrolling the beach. And, you know, as a, like, as a young woman, I shouldn't be doing this. But actually, the sex workers are our number one ally mm. when it comes to um, the leatherback turtles. Because, uh, because they're here at nighttime, when they see a turtle come in and we're not here, they call us and then they wait with the turtle until mm. we arrive. Mm. And so for me, that was a really incredible um, moment where you could think about, I don't know. Yeah. Um, no. 
side note, I don't know whose like parents are gonna listen to this, but uh, it was this really incredible moment um, where you could think about environmental justice, you could think about yeah. light pollution, you could think about the indirect impacts of the hurricane, you could think about the politics um, of sex work, yeah. right? Safety um, and thinking about um, humanizing um, uh, sex work mm -hmm. as work, um, and then thinking about the intersections between um, environmental um, and gender studies um, and sexuality studies in this way, right? This was like, incredible. We were like walking. We were like, "This is amazing." Yeah. To really have our students really think com like in a very complex way yeah. about how all of these things come together, um, and how there's kind of um, you know these things are not happening in isolation, right? These are communities of people um, engaged um, in in work, right? Right. Yeah. right. I mean, and that's a great example of how the complexity of a situation like this needs humanists who understand how to address that complexity and see the challenges in the complexity um, through which they present themselves and having knowledge of the social political issues associated with sex workers and with the natural forces of how turtles operate and 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 their relationship to the to the moon and and the natural forces of the environment I mean all of that is part of what it means to live a holistic life in community with nature and with one another and so having that for our students and also for um, our faculty to be able to sort of bring their their theoretical um, commitments to bear on that is really critical Talk a little bit about the the uh, new program that we have called Muse in in the English department. I know we we have a a great strategy around recruiting uh, graduate students into the program. Yeah, it is so exciting. It was, it's really great. So, um, the English department secured um, I think three years uh, three year grant. Um, to really kind of recalibrate um, our recruitment strategies in the department. We have um, really uh, incredible faculty and really incredible graduate students. And what we want to do is like bring more, right? Yeah. Bring more graduate students um, and actually encourage students who are like underrepresented in the academy into into English, right? Into the in, into a humanities PhD program. I personally think that's really important. It's, you know, as someone who studied the humanities as an undergrad, I, I did the Muse podcast, I, I, mm -hmm. I, you listen to it, but I was like gung-ho about going to an English PhD program <laughs> and was devastated when I was not accepted by any of them. And mm. you know, my advisor was like, we told you, they don't care about you. Mm. You know, like they were like, we told you. And I remember being like, I just can't believe it, you know? Um, and so when we got this opportunity, um, to put this uh, grant together, I was like, we actually do. We want these students. Like, we yeah. want we want these students. And so, the Muse program, um, we were first thinking about doing a very complicated, uh, like tabling at every grad program, <laughs> like <laughs> fair <laughs> in the country. And I came mm -hmm. to you and talked to you about that. And I was like, Chris, this sounds bananas. I don't know what we're gonna do. Like, it just sounds a lot like a lot of work. And you know, and you were like, you know, Yamar, you should look into this other this program that you know, and the, the philosophy department at Penn State. Um, and so you gave me that that little like nugget of an idea. And so I brought it to the associate chair of English, um, Justice Nealands, and we sat and we talked about how we could replicate something like that yeah. um, on a smaller scale because we had a smaller budget. Mm -hmm. um, but to really think about what it would mean to recruit nationally. Um, so we recruited nationally and in Puerto Rico as well. Um, for undergraduate students who um, who were thinking about uh, pursuing the PhD, who were either seniors or who were pursuing their master's degree at the moment, and who were underrepresented um, and who were doing kind of interesting work in English. And so we thought that we would get like three or four applications. I mean, we were just like, I think we were thinking from the beginning, like, oh, you know, if we get three, 
we'll take those three. It'll be great. You know, like, it, it's fine. It's fine. Like, we'll grow it. We'll grow it. Um, and so it was, like, really a shock to see how many applicants we got. I think we got, like, over 60 applicants. Um, and so wow. we were able to bring in a cohort of eight students. I think it's just going to grow from here. Yeah. And the eight students were incredible. So we were we hosted them for four days on campus. And we had um, a series of workshops about, like, professionalization and graduate school, what it means to apply, what are the kind of, like, nitty-gritty steps. Uh, we also had time for them to present their work alongside faculty and graduate students from our program um, in these panels, mm-hmm. um, which is really, really incredible to get the, a sense of like, this is how you present your work, right? This right. is what it means like to share um, kind of in this intellectual community. Um, we also did like a, a fellowship and grant applant application workshops with them. Um, and then we also did really fun stuff. So we connected with some of the other graduate programs and uh, we went bowling. <laughs> uh, we went to sushi. Like we just, you know, we had a guest speaker come in. Um, and so they were able to have one-on-one time with the guest speaker and really yeah. kind of pick her brain. She was a uh, Sara Ramirez, who's a uh, Chicana literary uh, scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, and so really for them to get that kind of a sense of what it looks like for someone else outside of MSU that does literary studies um, in this kind of like ethnic studies framework. Um, And so that was like, they really love that as well. And so um, Justice and I were like driving around campus in a 12 passenger van, just (laughs) whipping it around. It was great. And um, with the students and it was really wonderful. And I think for many of the students, it was transformative. And I think that they said that to us. Um, And I was so happy to meet them and get to talk to them and think about um, this kind of new crop of students. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the things I was talking to them about was something that someone told me in grad school that I thought was really important, which is like um, as you're thinking about cohorts, like one of the uh, one of the things that happens in graduate school is like you begin to think about each other's competition mm-hmm. rather than thinking about uh, one another as um, connecting to each other in these really incredible ways. And so I was telling them like, you know, y'all are going to be in grad school at the same time. You'll be each other's support system no matter where you end up, mm-hmm. and um, you will be sharing students. Like when you become professors, you'll have students. You know, like you'll be sending your students to this person, that one to this one. So really start to think about this in in another way, right? right. Rather than in the like. I have to take you down because if I don't take you down, you'll take my job, you know, like, (laughs) which is like such the kind of scarcity model that I think that we're um, kind of equipped with. And so on the one hand, it's really thinking about how do we transform um, the field of English and Mm -hmm. the humanities um, and show that we value the work that are coming from underrepresented and first generation students um, and the ways that they're tapping into knowledge production. Um, And then also how do we change um, the kind of terms of engagement right. <laughs> um, in graduate studies, right. right? And when we when we when we um, try to talk to our students about um, what are kind of more humanistic ways to think about um, doing this work, it's such an important model for what a new way of engaging with one another in the academy could look like. It's one where uh, caring for one another is important, where generosity, where we build and nurture community and we see one another as as resources rather than as competition. And I think that that, that's such an important role um, to to play as faculty members and and as we think about um, introducing new graduate students into the program and also contributing more broadly to um, the kinds of students who go into English departments and into into graduate programs in the in the humanities, that modeling of generosity has been um, an important part of um, your experience with others in in the in the unit. I've been really uh, grateful for all the ways that you have helped advance your colleagues' work and the. Um, 
the support that you've provided for for your colleagues in nominating them for awards. I know Tamara and you have uh, have nominated one another and won awards. <laughs> and it be, but but for me, that's um, a, a, an example of how to embody the kind of generosity and and um, support that we need to establish in the academy because it has become such a toxic place and we need to take care of each other in a, in a different way and you're really modeling that so thank you you might oh thank you you know I, I think a lot about um, the politics of like women of color yeah. right and what it means for us to have uh, born witness to this in our families and our communities I know that my mother was always uh, someone who um, I think to a fault would is like a giving person, right? I mean, I remember having like a if I, we had friends or, or cousins over and we had a toy that they liked, like they're like you can have that, and mm. we'd be like, no, that's our only toy, <laughs> you know, like what? Um, but I think it's also uh, something that happens in community of women of color, and I think sometimes that gets divorced from the academy um, in many ways. Um, and I think it was really important for me and for like um, the the women of color faculty that I roll with. Um, for us to have and share that generosity with one another and to be part of a much longer, like, history of that practice, right? right? To to really say, like, we really believe in this and we want to believe in the generosity for our students and we totally believe in the generosity for thinking about our scholarship and and and, um, and thinking about ways that uh, we can expand these things, but also, like, how do, how do we relate to one another? And I think that's also part of this kind of larger politic of decolonial love, right? How do we how do we remap the relationships with one another? Um, and so it's been, it's been really great. And, you know, I was able to come in with um, a woman of color as we got hired at the same time in the same kind of cohort in the English department, and we're really navigating it together and yeah. really, like, seeing each other um, struggling, but also, like, our triumphs yep. and then more struggle, you yeah, know, and... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and being able to see that and, and um, to hold each other up even as, you know, sometimes you feel like you're, you can't, you're not seen at all, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, y- you, you are a, a model for what I hope the university as- can aspire to become because we, uh, and it is an aspiration, we're not there nearly close enough yet, but the ways in which you're embodying those values um, in your work and in your relationship with students and with your colleagues and with the institution, because I've really learned an enormous amount from our conversations, and it's helped me imagine a new possibility for what uh, a college could be, what a university could be, if we could set our intentions on ensuring that we're incentivizing and nurturing the kind of supportive scholarship that you're talking about and that you're putting into practice in, in your work. So I'm really grateful for <laughs> your time today on the podcast and for your work uh, more generally and more broadly. Thanks, you, Myra. Yeah, thank you, Chris. A big thank you to everyone here in the studio today. And you can follow more of Dr. Figueroa's work, teaching and research on her website, yomairafigueroa.com, and on Twitter at Dr. Yofigi. And lastly, I'd like to thank those involved in the Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast, including our technical producer, Dan Trejo, and Nadav Pace Greenapple, and our marketing director and producer, Ryan Kilcoin. And of course, you can access all of Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast at go.cal.msu.edu slash podcast. I'm Dean Christopher Long, and I'll see you next time on the Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast.